It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. What was the war in Afghanistan? How did it start and end? And what is the legacy of the conflict? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Warnasek. On August 30th, 2021, the United States military campaign in Afghanistan came to an end with the departure of the final flight from Kabul. It marks the conclusion of the longest war in American history, beating out the Vietnam War by five months. Many Americans struggled to remember a time when we didn't have a military presence in Afghanistan. And now that it's over, it's a good time to look back and reflect on how it all began. Why was the United States fighting in Afghanistan for so long? How did the war change over the years? And what are the lessons of America's longest war? Well, here to break all of that down is retired four-star general of the U.S. Army, General David Perkins. General Perkins, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing? Very good. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to come on this podcast to go over the war in Afghanistan. Obviously, it's something we've been experiencing for, you know, the last 20 years and then finally came to a conclusion. So I want to get to all of that. But um, just to get the full picture, I think it's important to first discuss how 9-11 shaped the, uh, the future. So can you just walk me through the timeline that led to the U.S. spending 20 years in Afghanistan, you know, the longest war in our nation's history? Yeah, I mean, uh, so it is interesting, like you say, how long it has been because our lives have been so full by then. In fact, I was a, I was a much younger colonel, a brigade commander, a force steward at the time. And I remember driving back into the office after our physical training exercise and hearing something about something going on in New York. And they thought maybe, you know, a small private plane hit, hit one of the towers. And then literally I just walked back into my office and saw the second plane actually hit. And, and at that point, you know, it, it really struck me like I'm sure it did everybody else. Like, okay, this is not a coincidence. This is not an accident. Something is going on here. And, but it was really hard to process, uh, you know, so much, uh, information and, and so much of it was being real time visual. And it was obviously something most of us in our lifetime had never experienced. We're trying to figure out what that meant to us. Uh, and being in, in the military at the time, uh, it obviously dramatically changed, you know, my life and, and all of us to serve in the whole country. Really. Um, we all became very, aware of security and all the protocol that went into flying and how we had to secure where we lived and where we went to work and all that. Uh, and so to the U.S., it kind of happened in a second, right, when the plane hit to the average person going about their daily work. Obviously, you know, th these are tensions that had built up uh, over decades or, or even centuries in some ways. I mean, you could pull the thread on this and it goes back centuries, you know, uh, uh, inter-Islamic uh, tensions, uh, West and East, et cetera, like that. But obviously it came to a head when uh, Osama bin Laden 
planned and then executed via, you know, his surrogates, uh, the attack on the U.S. And I think for the first time in most people's lives, they really came to an understanding that the things that we take in this country for granted, I mean, just going to work every day, security, our freedoms and all that are actually quite unique in the world. And they have always been under threat, but we just didn't realize it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's such a good point. It's we were blessed for a while. I mean, it, depending on what age you were, obviously you experienced if different moments in history. But that moment is one that a lot of us carry with us. I mean, just since it didn't happen that long ago, comparatively speaking. So then what what happened from there? I mean, 9-11, you know, wrecked everyone's, you know, vision of security and then obviously took away a lot of lives. Um, And uh, so what happened after that? What was President Bush's response and how did that lead us to invading Afghanistan? So, you know, the last time the United States had been attacked uh, on our own soil was Pearl Harbor. And uh, so, you know, a lot of analogies were made to that. And uh, of course, after that, I mean, obviously that was, you know, for attribution, it was very clear who did it. Uh, it. It led us into World War II. And, you know, as they say, the rest of that is history, but it was a you know, sort of very defined enemy, uh, sort of geographical in nature. There was cause and effect. And so, you know, the response was, and I, and I expected, I think, of most people in the United States, oh, you know, you can't let this stand. Uh, you, you've got to sort of, you know, defend your freedom and, and make sure that this does not go unanswered. And I, and I think that was pretty much the feeling of most Americans at the time. And in fact, you know, when President uh, Bush went down to ground zero and had the, you know, the the famous moment with the megaphone, you know, the whole rest of the world can hear you. I think there was a desire on most people's part to, okay, who, who was responsible for this? How did it come about? And what are we going to do about it? And, um, you know, the intelligence agencies actually pretty quickly were able to pull together you know, the Al-Qaeda backing and links to it. And then the Osama bin Laden uh, linkage with regards to, you know, sort of uh, being, if you want to call the 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 ringleader of that. And then uh, determining, you know, where he was and, and, and the role that the area of Afghanistan played. And so um, then that led to, uh, you know, our first military response, besides the internal security uh, responses we have, uh, was to go into Afghanistan. And uh, so the U.S. military did that, sort of sort of put al-Qaeda on the run uh, and disrupted their planning and execution cell, but obviously didn't destroy them as an organization. Uh, and so... In many ways, that became part of the, the long saga of our relationship with Afghanistan, um, since we're talking about it as the year anniversary of our withdrawal, really became through that linkage of 9-11, Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden operating out of Afghanistan. Right. Um, you know, those those videos we've seen the Taliban just celebrating that withdrawal, too. Um, as you mentioned, the year anniversary. 
Just to go back to those beginning moments, because 20 years is a long time. It's easy to lose sight of those beginning days. What do you think was the biggest factor in President Bush's decision? Obviously, you're not in his head, but, you know, just as a someone who's in the mil- was in the military at the time, what went into that decision? Well, I'm, you know, when they pulled all the pieces together, it was pretty easy to establish the cause and effect between Osama bin Laden and uh, 9-11 and the activity that occurred. And then then therefore finding out where he is, disrupting his capability, first of all, immediately to make sure, you know, I remember a a lot of us and and being in the military, we were put on high alert that, you know, what's going to happen on, you know, 9-12? Is there Mm going to be another attack? Is there going to be a follow-up one? Um, You know, a, a lot of possibilities are out there. And so, the immediate response, uh, understandably, is to prevent any further immediate attacks and or uh, follow on activity. Uh, and I, I, I'm thinking that the president at the time, the national security apparatus said, you know, we know where the planning cell is at. We know where this coordination is taking place. If we can disrupt that and go after that, that would be the best way to uh, prevent future attacks. I mean, obviously, you sort of have the, the the front guard, which is, you know, protecting people at airports and things like this. But you sort of want to get, as we call, left of bang, right? You, you want to interdict the attack before the planning even occurs or in, in, in interdict the planners and things like that. So I'm, I'm sure the president was thinking, how can we not just have to respond to another attack, but how can we prevent another attack from occurring? Right. That's so important. That is so important. And and uh, speaking of attacks, I remember May 2nd, 2011, we heard that U.S. forces killed Osama bin Laden. How did that moment change the course of this war? I mean, it, it went on for another, what, 11 years? Yeah. Um, interesting enough, I was a uh, commander in Iraq at the time. Um in, in northern Iraq, and, and we got the word that Osama bin Laden had been killed. And there is sort of that immediate, you know, finally, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. we've been at this for a while. But I think a lot of us that had been in the business for a while, I'd had multiple uh, assignments to Iraq and visited Afghanistan multiple times. I mean, I knew in my heart that's not going to be the end of it. You know, it it is a victory. There's a um, instant gratification part of it. But Al-Qaeda, ISIS, uh, they they build upon this radical view of the world. Uh, They have, they're very decentralized. There's cells everywhere. So, you know, you just don't take out the head of one of these organizations and then that's the end of it. You, that disrupts it, that, um, definitely makes them look over their shoulders. And so they're much more cautious. But it, this is a, you know, it's like weeding a garden, right? You can go out there and, and pull the weeds out of the garden and it looks, it's great for a while. But if you don't stay after it, eventually more weeds will grow. And that's how it is, unfortunately, with um, this counterterrorism activity. It, it literally is like weeding a garden.
Mm. So, um, in your opinion, then, what needed to happen eventually? So that moment, you're right. It was instant gratification. I think everyone breathed a sigh of relief, but there was still more to be done. What more was there to be done? Eradicate these organizations uh, completely? Yeah, so um, that would be great, right? That would be great. Uh, But that's almost impossible in some ways. And and so I all having sort of done this for a living for the vast majority of my life, I, I tend not to um, oversimplify complicated problems because that's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your, your emotions want you to be able to do that. Uh, But and this makes, and this is difficult and this becomes a um, difficult thing. I think, Emotionally, especially for the Western psyche to understand, it's difficult for democracies, uh, but it, it is constant vigil, vigilance. And it is this there, there you do not eradicate this. What you do is you minimize its capability to be a daily threat. And, and that is a daily, monthly, yearly activity that probably is not going to go away. Definitely in our lifetime. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Just to get back to the killing of Osama bin Laden, obviously uh, you have a military mind. I'm a civilian. A lot of our listeners um, probably have both. There there are some in the military, some who are civilians. But just from a civilian standpoint, we don't get the intricacies of what goes into an undertaking like that. Is there anything you can tell me about the planning that goes into finding someone like Osama bin Laden, uh, Osama bin Laden and then eventually uh, taking his life? Yeah, I mean, it's um, incredibly difficult. So somebody, as you say, like myself, who, who, who knows how these things happen, you, you have a high personal regard and respect for everybody involved in doing that. Uh, because uh, in, in, in this case, and this is part of the problem with counterterrorism, if you're fighting a nation state, and that nation state, as we did in World War II, they're, they're geographically defined country. They have very well-defined command and control structure. You know who the leaders are. Their military wears uniforms, et cetera, like that. You know, they can, you know, they, they use deception. They use camouflage and all that. And so even on their best days, when they're trying to avoid detection, I'm talking about nation state on nation state. It is sort of like finding a needle in a haystack, right? And that can be difficult. But in counterterrorism and in Osama bin Laden's case, that's like finding a needle in a pile of needles, which is much more difficult because a needle in a haystack, once you find the needle, you know what it is and it stands out from the hay. Mm. When you're looking for a needle in a pile of needles, it's all blended in. It's being able to discriminate from one to another when all of their exterior attributions look the same. 
So to be able to find a needle in a needle, pile of needles, which is what Osama bin Laden, the hunt for him was like, uh, is, is incredibly difficult, tedious, uh, sort of relentless work. And then, um, you know, we want to make sure that, in fact, we have found the right needle. So you have to cross cue all of your intelligence sources. You play devil, devil's advocate. Well, what if somehow we've been tricked and that's not him, et cetera. And so that's just the whole identification piece. <laughs> and then when you want to execute the mission, the amount of effort uh, and I'll talk from the U.S. point of view, the amount of effort that the U.S. puts into preventing collateral damage right. and, uh, you know, innocent civilian casualties and all those things is enormous. I can just tell you, having been a commander in combat multiple times, um, probably spend as much time preventing unnecessary damage as we do planning the actual execution against the enemy. So obviously when there is minimal collateral damage and minimal uh, civilian loss of life, nobody talks about that because it's almost expected. It's almost when the opposite occurs, something unfortunate happens, uh, there there are civilian casualties, there's civilian damage, then Everybody, how could this happen? What goes on? And so you, when it goes right, it is, um, you know, uh, ignorance is bliss. You, you just don't know what could have gone wrong. And so I guess that's one of the points I'd like to convey to your listeners. When you look at the intricacy of finding Osama bin Laden, pinpointing who he is, going in there in the dead of night without being detected, without taking loss of American life, minimal collateral damage, relatively speaking. There are so many places that could have gone wrong, be it not for the professionalism of the servicemen and women and the intelligence people and all the planners uh, involved in it. Wow. Yeah. You're just to conceptualize what it took is is difficult for anyone when you're not in that situation. But I think you did a good job of just painting that picture because it's true. I mean, you can't just go in there and take take him, take him out. I mean, there is so much that goes into that. How, how much time are we talking? I mean, how how long do you spend planning a mission like that? Well, so, you know, this is a good question, because even if you just said, OK, we you know, we got our first indication that Osama bin Laden was there and then we cross-queued the intelligence and we tracked him, whatever. I mean, that could have taken easily up to a year. But but that's not the long pull of intent. The, 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 really, when you take a look at the time, how long have those helicopter pilots been flying helicopters and training for this their whole life? How long, in this case, the, the Navy SEALs, how long have they been a SEAL? How long have they been training for this in other missions? How long were the intelligence people been training uh, to understand, uh, you know, human sources, uh, national sources, analysis, and all that. I mean, something like the Osama bin Laden raid is, is really a culmination of multiple lifetime of training and experience. Wow. So, I, I um, you know, the Navy SEALs are credited with taking out Osama bin Laden. Were there other branches of the military involved in that mission, or was it purely Navy? 
Oh, you know, everything the U.S. military does nowadays is joint. So um, that was, uh, you know, SOCOM Special Operations Command uh, was running that. And so that is a joint service. So, you know, there's um, th- those are Black Hawk helicopters, you know, which a lot of those flown by Army soldiers, uh, probably refueling assets that, that were run by Air Force personnel. Uh, you know, they brought them back to ships. So that's Navy personnel. Uh, Marines are guarding the ships. And so uh, there, there, there was a role for uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, uh, and Marine Corps in, in all of this, especially when you say, when you bring in the preparation that goes on and the logistical support and all that, it was clearly a joint operation. Absolutely. And then when you talk about the war in general over those 20 years, how is it decided which branch goes where, when, and who sends the most troops? Yeah. So you look at the missions as they unfold and and you figure out who has the availability of resources and who has those resources. And so the various services, um, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, they have executive agency for certain functions in a theater. Uh, and so um, most of my year long combat deployments were in Iraq. And so I'm obviously Army. So in many, usually the Army has executive agency for logistics uh, because we are very big logistics uh, arm of the Army and the Army is the largest service as far as numbers and is designed to stay long periods of time, et cetera. So the army may well provide logistics for everybody say that's on the land, the Marines, the air force personnel, the Navy people that are there. Uh, But then when you have unmanned aerial vehicles and some of that intelligence capability, the air force has very sophisticated unmanned aerial vehicles. So a lot of time the air force will get a mission to fly uh, an unmanned area vehicle, but the but the intelligence from that unmanned area vehicle will go to an army unit on the ground. So uh, really, it's mission by mission, specialty by specialty. Who has the capability? Who is in location? Maybe some, you know, in Iraq, all the times I was there, we had um, on the ground both Marines and Army uh, because we had a rotation policy. And the quite honestly, the Army wasn't big enough to for all the years that were there to rotate people through unless you keep them extraordinary long time. So the Marines kind of went out in El Anbar province Mm -hmm. uh, and they kind of had that area to supplement, uh, you know, the army's boots on the ground. So a lot of time and effort goes into planning um, roles and responsibilities. And it's almost a daily, uh, in fact, it is a daily process going through as missions come up who has assets, who's located where, uh, et cetera, et cetera, like that. And those decisions are made daily. Mm -hmm. And just to take that question a step further with an example, you gave a good example, but I was curious about um, that tragedy that happened to 13 service members, uh, the Marines that were killed in Kabul during that attack. Um, Why was it the Marines who were there? What, What goes into that kind of decision? Yeah, well, I mean, the Marines were there, but uh, the Army was there, too. The 82nd Airborne Division, this commander and all that. Uh, it was just unfortunate for the Marines. Their sector uh, that they had is, is is where that attack occurred. But um, mm. there were quite a I mean, there were plenty of soldiers there on the ground and, and Air Force 
planes coming in, the C-17s and all that. It just happened that that attack occurred there uh, in the Marine sector. And so it's, um, but it does, the Marines were not the only ones there, I guess. Right, right. Yeah, no, I totally. Um, and and uh, just a question overall, because again, I, I like to bring it back to civilians view of this war as well. Uh, Back in 2002, Congress appropriated over $38 billion in humanitarian and reconstruction assistance to Afghanistan from 2001 to 2009. So can you just talk to me about the funding aspect of this war? Yeah. And so, um, so as our forces would be on the ground there um, in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, you have, um, um, I don't want to get too technical here on terms, but you have OCO funding, which is your operational funding uh, that you do military operations with. And of course, then you have your base budget that funds the, the training, manning and equipping of your services. Uh, but then we had at one time we uh, call it CERT funding, which were commanders uh, sort of reconstruction funds, special funds that they could use to try to help in the areas that they were in, uh, try to get the local government governance capability, people stand up on their own two feet, uh, you know, get the schools running, get some of the other services being provided and try to, um, you know, uh, give some ability to the Afghan government so that the Taliban and others couldn't come in and undercut them. And, you know, this is unfortunately a very common occurrence around the world when you have these sort of failed states or failing states or ungoverned areas, these terrorists or criminal organizations or organizations that are a combination of all of them, they will come in and they will promise the locals to provide the services that the government cannot, Uh, you know, some security services and you know, basic services like water and and uh, running schools. The problem with that is, is they do it for an ulterior motive, and that is to gain leverage in the area. And then they sort of recruit their other terrorists from that from that group, from that town that they're at. So, you know, th- this is sort of a balancing act. Uh, when we have our forces here, we're, we're, we're doing the counterterrorism mission, but is part of this weeding the garden aspect. We're trying to be preventive in, as well and, and have the locals turn to the government as their source of, uh, you know, sustenance and security, not these terrorist organizations. Got it. Right, right. So what did a day-to-day then look like for a soldier who was in Afghanistan during that 20-year period? Yeah. And so, I mean, there's there's no standard day and you get different missions of your intelligence. You're focusing on one thing. But but if you are an infantryman or, um, you know, sort of a line unit, you're probably going to spend quite a bit of time securing yourself, uh, your area, as well as going out on patrols. A lot of times we'll call them presence patrols to one kind of get a sensing uh, the area that you're operating in, uh, talking to locals, developing relationships with them, trying to find out is uh, is Al Qaeda, uh, is ISIS, our other sort of terrorist organizations, are they making inroads, gaining intelligence? 
providing security uh, for the local population as well, trying to keep uh, what we call the lines of communication, the locks open, the roads and um, conveyances that we use to bring supplies both to the U.S. forces as well as how the locals supply themselves so that, again, the terrorists can't sort of, uh, you know, cut you off and then have leverage that way. So a lot of time is spent out moving around, trying to get a feel for what's going on, providing security for yourself, providing security for the locals. Uh, And then if there is an attack, reacting to that attack, uh, uh, reacting to um, deliberate terrorist uh, operations, trying to interdict terrorist operations, uh, uh, using intelligence. If you can, there are ways to detect that some interdict to say somebody's implanting um, a roadside bomb or an IED or things like that. So you go out and, you know, uh, intercept the process of putting that in and keeping, like I said, the lines of communications clear so that you're not ambushed. So th- there's just a lot that goes on day to day for keeping yourself safe and keeping the local population safe. Right. And, and, you know, 20 years is a long time. We keep talking about that, but that's a lot of election cycles, too. So did the goal in Afghanistan change depending on which administration was in charge at the time? Yeah, you know, I mean, those are always tough questions. And it's, you know, I, I hate to give sort of uh, an immediate, hey, here's the lessons learned from Afghanistan. And and this is everything went right, everything went wrong. And here's the full story. Because, I've, you know, a year, as you and I are talking, a year anniversary, well, that sounds like a long time. Could you figure it out by now? But, you know, every year people are writing new books on the civil war and the revolutionary mm-hmm. war coming up with new insights and new explanations. So, so war is a hard thing to, to, to kind of uh, quickly in, in, in totality understand all the cause and effect. I think what happened as time went on and, I, and I've had multiple combat tours is, you know, war is a, battle of asymmetries. And so you uh, are, tend to do one thing and then the enemy's trying to get a read on you. And then the enemy changes their modus operandi to take advantage of what they perceive as one of your weaknesses or something you've overlooked. And then you react to that. And then it's back and forth, back and forth. And I think, I mean, I know that's exactly what occurred in this case over 20 years is that we went in initially uh, with you know, not a large force going after Osama bin Laden, going in to initially disrupt him. Then eventually they adapt to us. And then what we're trying to do is, is get one step ahead of them and make sure that they are now don't have the capability to continue playing an attack. And so this is the nature of war. And this is what makes it so difficult when you go in initially is trying to figure out how not everyone wants to figure out what it is then right Mm -hmm. where's the enemy you know where's our where are our forces where's my logistical support and that's hard enough the difficult part is if i go in how does that change the balance of power in the region what is going to be the reaction to that? What is the enemy going to do? What are the locals going to do? What are the allies going to do? And it's trying to look in your crystal ball and determine what's going to change versus how it is today. We'll be right back after this. 
you know, I don't I don't want to get political with this question, but after 20 years, how obviously you're looking at intelligence and listening to a lot of people. But how do you finally make that decision that it's time to get out and if we're ready to get out or prepared? Yeah, um, you know, getting out versus staying in, it's, I mean, most things in life aren't digital like that, a zero or a one. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, we are, quote unquote, still in, right, in some way. Uh, people talk about over the horizon capability, and obviously we just had a recent success, you know, taking out uh, a terrorist leader and all that. So we're still in, we're just in differently. So I, I would re rephrase the dilemma is it's not in or out. It's how do you ensure America's, America's security, maybe in a different way. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, everything is strategy. There's a lot of, a lot of things that go into it. Um, and I, I, I'll avoid the question of what do you think we can learn? Because you said it's, it's difficult to put your finger on that, but just kind of, as we, uh, as we wrap things up, what do you think is the main point people get wrong about the war or something that people should take away from it? Yeah. So, I mean, like most things in life, sort of uh, a mixed bat in their bag. I mean, so I've uh, been to combat multiple times and and you always try to be your own worst critic and do an after action review. What went well, what didn't go well, et cetera. You try not to jump to conclusions and you try not to over um uh, overgeneralize say well this didn't work good today therefore every time you do x every time you do y so myself personally one of the big takeaways uh having been at this for a number of years and multiple times is is every time every situation is different and you've got to make sure that you that you understand you don't know what you probably don't know uh, mm-hmm. I think probably the biggest mistakes uh, we have made throughout this whole process is many times too quick to make assumptions that fit our narrative. And then the assumptions maybe made it seem that the task is going to be easier than it really turned out to be. Uh, it is amazing when we go back to our discussion on Saint Ben Lanray. I, I mean, it is amazing uh, the things that well that we've seen in, in the open press and things that I, I've seen personally over these twenty years of our um, men and women who serve actually do in combat. It's almost eye watering the successes they pull pull off. Uh, but we we also have to understand that. Um, you know, no matter how successful an operation is, our definition of success is generally different than the enemy's different of definition of success. And we've got to make sure that when we achieve our definition of success, that the, that definition is also the definition of failure of the enemy. Because if it's not, it's not going to have the intended effect on them. Mm. Because maybe what we consider success in is like, oh, whatever, we'll, we'll put up with that. That's nothing big. And, and it has no effect on them. And so rather than us defining success, 
we should spend more time defining what is a loss to the enemy. Interesting. Yes. And you don't know what you don't know, but we know a lot more now because of your insight. General Perkins, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks. It's been great talking with you. Have a great evening. If you missed anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about the war in Afghanistan. Number one, General Perkins says there are a lot of Pearl Harbor analogies made when talking about this war because that was the last time we were attacked on our own soil. He says the response was you can't let this stand. You have to defend your freedom and make sure this doesn't go unanswered. Number two. The general says that finding Osama bin Laden was a matter of finding a needle in a pile of needles, not a needle in a haystack. He emphasized that we probably spent as much time preventing collateral damage as we did planning the execution of the mission. That's the intricacy of a mission as monumental as this one. And number three. One of the general's main takeaways from the war was that it's not about defining what's a success to us. It's about defining what's a loss for the enemy. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast on the war in Afghanistan. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.